I mean, I came here directly from the hospital when I was born. My youngest son also came straight from the hospital to this place. And then my eldest son was born in New York, but when he was three months old, this was the first place I ever fully just laid him on the ground. Vadis and I began her interview with a walk around the property that has been a source of inspiration for both her and her mother throughout their lives. And it's 33 acres on Old Hickory Lake. And it's an idyllic piece of land that felt remote for Vadis when she was growing up, but today is surrounded by new suburbs. Even though she doesn't live here full time, she talks about this land as if it's part of her family, as if the land has created the foundation for her family structure and their sacred practices. Well, yeah, I mean, I got married here. So I got married on this point over here, and my parents actually got married a little bit up the ways. Vadis attributes many of her rites of passage to this land, from the most personal to the most universal. What are you planning to pass down to your children? Are they prized possessions that have been in the family for ages? Specific songs you've always sung? Maybe a favorite board game? The woman I'm going to introduce you to today has investigated the things daughters inherit and how it shapes who they become as mothers and people. This is Mother's Project a podcast that celebrates the relationship between motherhood and the creative work mothers do. I'm Ariel Lavery. And the woman I've already sort of introduced you to... My name is Vadis Turner. I'm a visual artist. I live in Nashville, Tennessee. I uh, am a mother of two wonderful sons. Uh, Gray is currently seven and Vreeland is four. I come from three generations of wonderful women. Uh, we called each other the three V girls. We still do, but my grandmother recently passed away. But I'm named after my grandmother, Avadis Pierce, and my mom is Vicki Turner or Victoria Turner. But we wouldn't have this magnificent property in this special house if it wasn't for my grandfather. This was his playground, and I feel like every day we are increasingly thankful to him for it. Vadis's grandfather made it in the Nashville music scene early on and bought this property as sort of a present to himself and his family. Since the deaths of Vadis's grandparents, the care of the property has been turned over to Vadis and her mother, and it has become an umbilical connection between the two women's daily practices. We're stewards, right? And we take care of it in different ways. And so my mom is fabulous. And and she and I, I must say, are like super different. My mom and I are really different. I mean, we don't even look related, but <laughs> we don't. But I, my mom and I, like, we have like sister souls. And when it comes to this place, we like always know what to do. Vadis's mother has developed a passion for caring for the trees. She's turned the property into an arboretum, but I think it's like a level four arboretum. A level four arboretum means there are over 120 different species of tree on this property. And despite Vadis and her mother acting as stewards of the land, Vadis recognizes that the land holds a kind of power over her and her family. There is just something about how much we need this place as a family and as individuals and just as human beings. Ritual is just kind of naturally unfold. When I look at Vadis's entire body of work, which incorporates refuse material from the family property along with materials from women's homes and women's bodies, 
I see direct connection between her life in this landscape and her choice to use such materials. She was trained as a painter, but moved on after undergrad to using unconventional materials. And I wanted to make work out of untraditional materials, but untraditional in the, in the art realm, but traditional to women's work. And I think maybe Southern women's work specifically or expectations. In her most recent work, she's been using materials that do come directly out of people's homes when they've reached the end of their life cycle. But I also think that the charging of these materials actually happens because of the use, right? right? And as we'll hear a bit more about later, Vadis's sense about these materials and their charge really grew with her entrance into motherhood and since. Something about the journey into and through motherhood made her realize the years and the experiences that I've had where now things that have been used have this charge and have this energy because of the time and the, really the weight of life that is already imparted into it. Though a Nashvillian at heart, Vadis moved to New York City to pursue her art career. There, she met her husband Trey, another Nashvillian, and they had their first son, Gray, while they were living in Brooklyn. I loved having a baby in New York City. All you gotta do is you strap them on and you leave the apartment, and all of a sudden you're on the street, and you're, you can just hop on the subway and go to the, all the museums, and, or go to the wine store, or go to the grocery store, I mean, you're, go to the reading. I mean, you're in the world, right? Sounds pretty great. I'll be the first to admit that having a culture like this just outside your front door while getting through that early baby time sounds pretty idyllic. But I've seen how my toddler interacts with the outside world now, and it makes me wonder what city life would be like at this point. Once he needed to run, you know, he started picking up all sorts of unmentionables off the street. And we left right when, like, the New York City bus exhaust pipe was, like, right at his face level. Like, I remember him being like, look at the bus! And the bus (laughs) exhaust was like, oh my god, right in his face. Vadis and her family decided to leave New York when Gray was two years old. There were a slew of reasons they made this decision, one of which had to do with how her professional life had gone since Gray's birth. You know, my work was not in a great place. I was not in a great place financially or professionally when, really when I was pregnant and then after I had Gray. And it's hard for everybody. I mean, this does not make me unique as an artist or as a mother. She was so humble when talking about her struggles in New York. Pursuing a career selling artwork in New York galleries can feel like an atlas-sized task. And so it was for Vadis. With a new baby on the way, she lost her representation. I got dropped because the work I was making wasn't selling, right? No one wrote about it. I mean, you know, just we're we're not in this to be friends, right? I want to say, like, in their defense, if they ever hear this, it was like a very professional way of sort of moving on and, and parting. The loss of her gallery was definitely a blow she didn't anticipate needing to sustain while planning to begin growing her family. But New York can be unforgiving. To have representation in New York and then to have a baby and not have representation anymore and not have a show to plan for is, you know. Without gallery representation and the inflow of capital, Vadis had to make a hard decision about where her studio would be. 
I moved everything out of my studio and moved it into our apartment because I couldn't afford to do both. And packing up a studio in whatever stage of life or whatever city you're in is just like miserable. It's so depressing because, I mean, if you're a mixed media artist, you're just like packing up trash. Tampons or pantyhose or whatever I was using at the time or just boxing up ribbon or blah, blah, blah. It's just, it's so, it just screws with your mind. Because it's like so impressive, right? She tried to make the best of the situation, entering this new work environment with a positive attitude. And I moved my studio into my apartment thinking it'll be just great because I'll be with the baby and I can feed on demand and make work and you don't have the energy. (laughs) Even though you have all the time and you're not doing anything, you actually can't do anything, right? I was honestly a little relieved to hear that Vadis had also experienced the feeling of having all the time in the world at your fingertips without being able to do anything with that time. I remember during that first year the feeling of swimming through time. There was so much of it, but I couldn't get anywhere fast. I know many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Anyway, despite motherhood coming in alongside this huge professional decrescendo, Vadis never blamed any of her professional failures on motherhood. They were just two separate events in her mind. She had always known she wanted to be a mom, and it just so happened that her professional life slowed down, maybe giving her the time to take on motherhood. And I always knew I wanted to have a baby, so everything kind of worked out the way I wanted to, and yet not at all how I wanted it to work out at all. But such is life. So obviously Vadis is not one to wallow. And more than that, she has this incredible clarity on the way motherhood connects her and her body and soul to a lineage of women. And um, I think a lot about, you know, how our bodies change in this process and how your body really isn't your own, right, once you get pregnant or even start to think about getting pregnant, right? right? And I wish that service stations didn't have such a dirty association because I I felt in like a beautiful way that I very much was a service station. I think Mm -hmm. I really serviced my family. And it was such a pleasure and a privilege to be able to use my body to do that. And it's not lost on me at all. Instead of thinking about how it makes it hard individually for us, I like to think about how it connects us. I mean, for me, I try and think about how it doesn't make me special. You know, the birthing and the mothering, it doesn't, and being a a mother and artist, it doesn't really differentiate me. It connects me to all the women who have done it before me and who have done it better than I have or differently than I have. Connection to something outside herself plays a big role in Vadis's life and work. The use of non-traditional materials in her artwork invokes these connections. It was really about how these materials carried the influence of other generations of women with them. And she thinks about this in the context of how the land they have connects her family to past generations of people who have occupied it. It's not ours, right? And it's not my son's either, right? I mean, it doesn't really belong to any of us. It belongs to generations of people I'll probably never meet, and it doesn't really belong to them either. But, like, we're stewards, right? So I asked about her family's decision to move back home two years after having her first baby, 
wondering if there was something she was missing from connecting with this piece of land. I mean, we moved back home for a lot of reasons. I mean, first, you know, New York wasn't really sustainable and we couldn't afford to upgrade, right? I also couldn't, you know, educating your kids and getting your kids into school or moving to the right neighborhood wasn't, you know, the stars were not aligned for school for our kids in New York. We could offer our kids more here. Additionally, um, Clay, my husband, is also from here. So we have parents, family members who are here. We want to be part of their lives. We want them to be part of our son's lives. And um, my husband was taking on a big career change. Vadis's husband had decided to leave his work as a literary agent. He also had a calling to the earth. Clay and his brother started a compost company in Nashville. So they run an organics recycling business. So I I assumed I was probably taking a backward step um, with my work when I came here, but a forward step for my husband's work and for the future of our family and the quality of our lives. Vadis had thought that moving back to the South back to the land she grew up on, was going to further dampen her career as it took her away from an epicenter of the art world. It wasn't a backward step for me professionally at all. Culturally and politically, we were going through a time where I think we started to look inward as as a country, you know, and people started to be interested in what artists were making in the heartland, in red states. When I would apply to things, you know, applying from Tennessee, differentiated me from all the other people who are applying from Brooklyn. In addition to gaining this geographic distancing that ended up differentiating her from the field, she came to realize the importance of working in a place where her studio allowed her to reconnect with the landscape she grew up in. And it has a lake view, and I can actually watch these storm systems roll onto the landscape. I see myself in the landscape, and the landscape is changing before me, and that feeds into the work. So maybe this was her reason for moving back, more than she knew. The land itself holds an important key to her life. The rites of passage that I went through here as a mother and as a woman, the rites of passage I continue to go through here, are part of my work. Perhaps the return to home, the allowance for this kind of change in one's life, is another rite of passage, the move towards your authentic self. I feel like finding the authenticity in your work requires this on some level. And what about acknowledging the authenticity of your identity as a mother in your work? I asked Fattis about a response she had given in an interview with Native Magazine, where she talked about a line a professor had told her. Peter Haas was my advanced drawing teacher. That the subject matter she was looking for was right under her nose. This advice has helped her make breakthroughs in her work on two different occasions in her life. The first time was after undergraduate school. When I was living in my mom's house and the voices in my head started to switch and I thought that the influence of women and that the work of women who have taught me things and influenced me in so many ways that that was, that was the world of work that I wanted to invest in and that that was under my nose the whole time. And the second time. And now that that lesson is even more significant now. I mean, as motherhood starts to creep in, I think you kind of, there's sort of this pause that I certainly had, I can't speak for everybody, of like, should I be doing this, right? Like, does everybody do this? And is this a little embarrassing? Is this a little predictable? Why do mothers have this apprehension? 
It seems like we learn again and again that making work from the authentic self is always the best work. But we still feel that to make art, compose music, write poetry about, or even design a podcast about motherhood is this taboo subject. Are we telling ourselves this? And if so, how do we get out of our own heads about it? Like the the line of just the subject matter being under your nose, I think it's very much now the confidence to say this is enough. Like the confidence to say that this is my material, this is my subject, and this is enough. And mm-hmm. if it's motherhood, great. If it's megaliths, great. If it's about moss or brutalist architecture or using breast milk, the confidence that I'm still working on. I mean, I don't want to profess that I'm like totally filled with all the confidence, but it's like the confidence to stand in front of the work and to make it as simple as possible and say it's about this and that's enough. And maybe these inhibitions really do come from the outside world, from all the critics, the media, the expert voices telling us that this is not a subject worth exploring. There are a lot of voices, right? Good ones and bad ones. And there are just some days where I really have to turn them off. And I made these bracelets that say, fuck everybody. Or sometimes it's just one bracelet. I've blown through plenty of them. But I wear a bracelet that says, fuck everybody. (laughs) So yeah, there you go. During our conversation, Vadis orbited around this central idea. Make it simple. This, to me, seems to go right along with finding your subject matter right under your nose. I find that making it simple is really hard. Editing one's work might be one of the hardest things to do in any practice. Let me tell you that after spending hours gathering the thoughts and wisdom of a woman, then editing it down in order to get a 30 to 45 minute episode sometimes feels like shaving my head might feel, just getting rid of excess weight. But when you get it right, it's the editing that is the most stimulating and the most satisfying. And I also feel that the editing for right now is how I connect with motherhood in my practice. Really? Yes. Can you? Elaborate on that? I'd love to. Yeah, it's something I, I thought of, I kind of came to a couple months ago. Um, so as I said before, it's about, you know, having the confidence to, to, to simplify, right? To edit. And I feel, I mean, I'm not a writer, but it's like, you know, I, I remember when I took a creative writing class, it was like, lose your darlings, right? It's like you have to edit out and eliminate anything that just like decorates or support, but to, to create a lean piece of meat, right? And to just deliver the information in the leanest way possible is really what I want to do with my work. And that is also how I want to teach my sons about the world. I was so struck by this idea of mothering Just take out all the extra baggage and make parenting simple. And to learn how to do this from your practice, this is exactly the kind of parenting inspiration I've been hoping for from my own training as an artist. For me to like over-decorate, over-complicate, over-explain is is really not helping them, right? I mean, it can be really confusing. But to just have the confidence to say like, it's about this, right? This is the truth. This is the heart of the matter. This is what happened. So what about that particularly difficult conversation you have to have with your kids? That one about where babies come from? Um, Gray was five and we were driving in the car and he was just like, you know, how did I get out of your stomach? Like, what is this whole thing about being in your stomach anyway? (laughs) And it's crazy, right? 
And I remember thinking, I only get to do this once because he's going to tell his brother who's listening, but maybe not absorbing it in the car. I was like, but I only get to do this once. And I'm not going to go into the whole like blah, blah, blah. And I just pulled over and I looked in the rearview mirror and I was like, you came out of my vagina. <laughs> and I could see his head. It looked like it was going to pop off and ricochet. And it was just, <laughs> I said it like, that's it. Yeah. And it was, I thought I was going to like pop all over the, the car. And then I started dying laughing. So with, with Bells and Burn Piles, essentially, I was that was the first time I ever used my own life experience in my work. Bells and Burn Piles was a series of works Vadis began when she was pregnant with her first son. The works are either monochromatic or highly contrasting colors made with ribbon, breast milk, and charred bits of wood suspended in resin. Much of Vadis's work weaves materials together to create nests of activity. And this series behaves similarly with compositions emanating out of the bottom of the image or the floor where the work resides. She described the importance of the bell shape used in this series, and again in later work while we were walking on her property. It's like this shape, which is essentially something that's flat on the bottom and round on the top, is really important to me because it embodies a lot of a lot of symbols for me. It's a it's a vessel, it's an inverted vessel, it's a womb, it's a hive, it's a home, it's a head, it's like a burial mound, it's a tombstone. And after she described the symbolic significance of this shape, she pointed out the literal source from whence it came, her mother's burn piles. The piles of tree debris left from her mother's labors making this land into a level four arboretum. It's a source for Vadis, which her mother doesn't think twice about. And she has no intention of making anything when she makes this. This is like completely haphazard and accidental, that her process is. But isn't this the way it is between mothers and daughters? Daughters watch their mothers learn to love the things they love. And that's when I go in and I harvest and collect the, the remains, right? So all the charred bits. Bells and burn piles were the first time I used breast milk and the first time I used the charred bits mm. from my mother's burn piles. And sort of nurturing these charred remains with this highly charged material and nutritious and life-giving material of breast milk was such a beautiful combination. And it also kind of felt, felt like alchemy, you know. But the bells and burn piles was when I 
put my own process of, of birth and of motherhood in, into the work. And I wanted to merge myself with my own landscape with the burn piles that we were looking at earlier. And so how does the burn pile become this place of, I mean, you know, birth is destructive, right? And when you when you kind of give your body into nurturing and creating life, it's like the strength and this rebirth is also happening with this kind of like exhaustion and depletion. Vadis had a solo show at the Frist Art Museum three years ago, in 2017, in which she separated the different phases of a woman's life into three categories. One category for each room her work was in. And so the first room was the wild woman, the second room was the mother, and the third room was the elder. I've addressed rites of passage many times, and they're a really important thing to me still, but I've never done them in order. In the room of the wild woman, the works read like abstract storms made of ribbon rolling across the landscape. The middle room, the mother room, had works from her Bells and Burn Pile series, and the last room had works from an entirely new project. It was a series of heirlooms that I made after interviewing over 20 female elders from my community. She found these women in some odd places. In um, healthcare facilities, in parked cars, at Shoney's, you know, some oh. like one connection led to another. And she found that communicating with these women was simple, just like she always strives for. They wasted no time in getting to the lean meat, mm. if you will. I mean, we just got to the marrow of, of life from the second, maybe even before I could hit record. Vadis asked them, what were the most important heirlooms they had received from their mothers? You might think that they refer to some ancient object that holds esteem for this reason or that, but Vadis learned something surprising. The best heirlooms are not objects. The best heirlooms are practices, behaviors, rituals that might be passed down from one generation to the next. Just as Vadis and her mother now have a practice of transforming the refuse from one practice into the treasure for another, these women spoke of picking things up from their mothers that stayed with them forever. One funny story was told by Ella Marie Parkinson, a woman Vadis interviewed at a retirement center in Nashville. I was a sloppy, messy teenager, and I would come home sometimes and find my, all my underwear and everything else that I had left around, strung up around my room, on the lampshades, on the bed, on bed posts, you know, on the windowsills. <laughs> and, around. and she put little poems on the things and notes about, um, I can't think of any of them right now, but little two-line things, you know. She instilled in me a love of writing. I still, for for um, Christmas and birthdays and things, I write little rhymes to everybody about everything. Really? <laughs> yeah, so, that's just something that I learned to do. But writing rhymes is something that your mother did mm -hmm. and that you did. Yeah. And do you? And you're a writer, as she was a writer. Yeah. You know, the women were so wise and so confident to answer these questions and not feel like they had to stick to objects at all. That some women said, you know, I don't have an object. Like my, my heirloom is a place, right? The, the, 
the thing that connects different generations of my family is, you know, we go here. This is where we're from, like my family in this place, right? This is where we're from. This is what we do, right? We walk the property. We scatter the ashes here. Heirlooms are places. They are ideas. They are ways of experiencing the world that evoke a memory of our ancestors. And one of the one of the elders, Sally Wells, she's a Native American of the Choctaw tribe. And her heirloom was the reservation in Mississippi that she had never been to before at the time of the interview. But she said, we all go home eventually. Some of the wisdoms I received, and they were they were they were vast, but that like you know your home and your heirloom, it's like we all go home eventually, even if you really hate your home. I mean, you know, if that's like your guiding force, like that is the force, right? Mm. So the people in the place where you're from, like you, that is always with you. Take these heirlooms and give them to your children. Thank you so much for listening. If you are loving this podcast and want to support it, make sure to subscribe in whatever listening app you use and tell a friend about it. The more listeners we get, the more great content I can bring you. I'd like to thank Vadis for touring me around her grandparents' property and sharing her wisdoms. Our theme song and other music was written and performed by Matt Rowan. Other music was by The Blue Dot Sessions, Sarah Afonso, TRG Banks, and Lee Rosevere. Okay, mamas, stay curious and stay resilient.